Chapter 14. He's back. How did the Bulls reward me for my MVP-type 1993-94 season? The only way they knew how, with the same disrespect they had shown from the day I arrived in Chicago. They tried to get rid of my ass. The worst part was they didn't have the courage to tell me themselves. I had to find out what was going on from my friends in the media. When I confronted Jerry Krause, he denied the Bulls were actively seeking a trade. That wasn't the point. Even the Bulls just listening to offers was upsetting enough. Organizations don't part with their best player. Most organizations, that is. And if they do decide, for whatever reason, to shop the player around, at least they have the decency to let him know something might be in the works. The Bulls, according to various press accounts, were hoping to send me to the Seattle Supersonics for forward Sean Kemp and guard Ricky Pierce. The teams would also exchange draft picks. Everything appeared to be set until the Seattle owner, Barry Ackerley, vetoed the deal. The word was the fans in the Pacific Northwest weren't too keen on giving up Kemp, who was only 24. I would turn 29 in September. To me, it made no difference that in the end, the trade didn't go through. The damage had been done. For months afterward, I was the one hoping for a trade. To go somewhere in the league, anywhere, where I was wanted. Which was clearly not the case in Chicago. A different rumor seemed to crop up every day. I started one myself, that I was headed to the Suns for Dan Marley, rookie Wesley Person, and possible draft picks. It got around in no time. No doubt there was life after the Chicago Bulls. Just ask Horace, who signed a six-year deal with the Orlando Magic in July of 1994 for $22.3 million. I was happy for him. He was finally gaining the respect he deserved. People asked if I tried to persuade him to stay in Chicago. Absolutely not. I would never stand in the way of a player in the payday he had coming. John Paxson, Bill Cartwright, and Scott Williams also left the team that summer. Pax retired, while Bill signed as a free agent with the Sonics, Scott with the Sixers. That old gang of mine was breaking up. The only players left from the three championship teams were me, B.J. Armstrong, and Will Perdue. Even Johnny Bach wouldn't be sticking around. Though that wasn't his choice. Phil fired him. I never found out the whole story. Johnny and Jerry hadn't been getting along for years. Everyone knew that. I'm pretty sure Sam Smith's book had something to do with it. Jerry believed Johnny was one of Sam's sources. What a hypocrite. Losing that many players meant we needed to bring in a bunch of new ones. They included forwards Larry Kristoviak, Judd Bushler, and Dickie Simpkins, a rookie from Providence, and most important, the man I wanted us to acquire the year before, Ron Harper. Harp, a guard, signed as a free agent for five years at $19.2 million. He wasn't the same athlete since he tore his ACL in 1990. That didn't make him any less valuable. I wasn't thrilled, however, with another move the Bulls made, which was signing Tony to a new deal for $26 million over six years, the largest in the history of the franchise. It figured. 
They leave me underpaid year after year. Then hand Tony a fortune. First, the last shot. And now this. The press, and Jerry Krause, no doubt, waited for me to lash out. I had been known to lash out before. Not this time. I knew it would do no good to say a word. And by this point, I was sure my payday would come eventually. If not with the bulls, with someone else, as it had come for Horace. One more piece of business had to be attended to before the summer break came to an end. Saying goodbye to the stadium, which was set to be demolished in 1995. I loved that building. The way it sounded, the way it smelled, more of a gym than an arena. And so much history had taken place there, and not just in sports. That's where the Democratic Party first nominated Franklin Delano Roosevelt way back in 1932. Safe to say that turned out all right. On September 9th, we staged the final game ever to be played at the stadium, the Scottie Pippen All-Star Classic. B.J., Horace, Tony, and a few other NBA players joined me in raising more than $150,000 for charity. There wasn't an empty seat. Oops, I almost forgot to mention one other name on that list. Michael Jordan. I was happy he showed up. He did more than show up. He scored 52 points in his team's 187-150 victory. Dunks, fallaways, reverse layups, the whole works. The fans loved the trip down memory lane. So did I. After the game was over, the two of us hugged. Michael then kissed the Bulls logo at midcourt. Soon he would be gone again to the new dream he was chasing as the right fielder for the Birmingham Barons, a White Sox Class AA affiliate in the minor leagues. While the group he left behind faced a future more uncertain than ever. The opening weekend of the 1994-95 regular season was most revealing. In back-to-back nights at the United Center, our new home across the street from the stadium, we struggled against two teams the Charlotte Hornets and Washington Bullets, who hadn't made the playoffs the year before. In the Charlotte game, we committed 27 turnovers. I was responsible for six of them. Good thing the Hornets threw the ball away 23 times themselves, allowing us to hang on 89-83. to The Bullets, meanwhile, beat us 199 in OT. That one hurt. I missed a game-winning shot at the buzzer. I was hacked on the arm, but there was no call. I wasn't surprised. The refs don't call a foul like that at the end of a game. Unless it's Hugh Hollins. The story was pretty much the same the whole month of November. Our longest winning streak was a whopping two games. Even so, I showed up at work every day with a positive attitude. That didn't mean I'd changed my mind about Phil Jackson. And what took place on November 19th, when we squared off against the Mavericks in Dallas, certainly didn't narrow the gap between us. A little background to set the scene. A week earlier, Jamal Mashburn, a starting forward for the Mavs, had torched us for 50 points in their overtime victory in Chicago. I took it personally, as I did whenever my man got the better of me, which wasn't often. So as we got ready to play them again, I let the guys know I would be going for 50. 
I set it on the plane to Dallas. I set it in the locker room before the opening tip. I practically taped it to my forehead. Phil couldn't have missed it. Everything went according to plan. Well, almost everything. I had scored 17 points by the half, 36 along with 14 rebounds after three quarters. I was on my way to the bench, where Phil would leave me the whole fourth quarter. I get it. We were killing the Mavs. He saw no reason for me to be out there. I saw a very good reason. I needed to answer Mashburn point for point. Believe me, if it had been Michael in the same scenario, I guarantee Phil would have kept him in the game until he scored 50, maybe 60. This felt no different from when he chose Tony to take the last shot. Phil didn't allow me to have my moment. The month of December wasn't any better. Two games stand out, both at the United Center, and it's difficult to choose which was more humiliating. On December 19th, the Cavs knocked us off 77-63, a franchise low in points. I was the high scorer with 14. At least the Cavs were a good team in the middle of what would ultimately be an 11-game winning streak. One week later, the Los Angeles Clippers beat us 95-92. The Clippers. The Clippers, 4-23, hadn't won in Chicago since 1979 when they were based in San Diego. In the second quarter, I received my second T, technical of the game, for arguing with an official after he had signaled me for an offensive foul. The first T was for taunting. I was done for the night. There was no mystery over why we were stinking up the joint. We missed Horace, almost as much as we missed Michael. Horace controlled the boards and held his own against the top power forwards in the league. The defeat put our record at 13-13, and 13, and me in a foul mood. I wasn't used to such mediocrity at any level of the game, high school, college, or the pros, which might explain why I unloaded on Jerry Krause the next day. He lies about everything, I told the reporters. You don't even bother yourself in dealing with him. I was referring to when Jerry lied about the near trade to Seattle. I was also frustrated he didn't make a more concerted effort to re-sign Horace. I'm not suggesting it would have made a difference, although you never know. It wasn't just the lying and the losing that bothered me so deeply. I was still angry about being underpaid. Tony, BJ, and Harp were each making more than I was. As usual, I didn't allow how I felt to hinder my effort on the court. I was leading the team in each of the five major statistical categories. Points, rebounds, assists, blocks, and steals. No player had accomplished that feat since Dave Cowens, a center for the Celtics in the late 1970s. But what I was going through was having an effect on me, and it was bound to show up. On January 24th, we took on the San Antonio Spurs at the United Center. Late in the first half, Dennis Rodman, now on the Spurs, mixed it up with Luke Longley. I couldn't believe Rodman wasn't called for a foul. I shared my opinion with Joey Crawford, the official, who didn't appreciate what I had to say. He gave me a T. Now I was really ticked off, resulting in another T. Before I left for the locker room, 
I made sure to leave one last impression. As I walked past our bench, I picked up a folding chair and tossed it onto the court, similar to what Indiana coach Bobby Knight famously did in 1985. I never liked Joey Crawford. He was one of those refs, and there were several, who used the whistle to show how much power they had. Looking back, I wish I hadn't thrown the chair. Someone could have gotten hurt. Even so, I didn't apologize then, and I won't apologize now. Fine, I overreacted. So did Crawford, and I don't recall him ever saying he was sorry. Soon, another trade deadline came and went, and I stayed exactly where I was. The latest reports had me headed to the Clippers. Maybe, maybe not. I never knew what to believe. Speaking of going nowhere, the Bulls' record in February was 5-8, and eight, the worst since April of 1989, when Doug Collins was the coach. The script was the same night after night. We would grab the lead and then fall apart in the second half. In early March, the team was 28-30, and 30, eight and one-half games behind the Hornets in our division, and light years behind the Orlando Magic, 44-13, and 13, who owned the best record in the Eastern Conference. The Magic featured two of the game's most exciting young talents, Shaquille O'Neal, a 7'1", 325-pound center, and Penny Hardaway, a 6'7", guard-slash-forward. Shaq will forever be linked with Kobe Bryant, and rightfully so. But Penny was his first true co-star. Penny could shoot from the outside and on the block, and was a tremendous passer. The odds were Horace would pick up another ring before I did, and if that happened, I would never hear the end of it. When he showed up for practice at the Berto Center on March 7th, it seemed like no big deal. Michael had worked out with the team on a number of occasions since his retirement. He still loved the game, and that was never going to change. Except something was different this time. He worked with the second unit and participated in a film session. He even ran sprints after practice. Guys began to ask themselves, is the man actually thinking about coming back? The speculation went on for several days, and no one knew the answer. The local TV and print reporters were on top of the story from the beginning. There hadn't been that many members of the media in the Birdo Center since Michael's farewell press conference in 1993, which felt like a hundred years ago. As usual, Michael didn't confide in me, nor did I dare to ask him what his plans might be. I knew how far our relationship went, and I didn't take it a step further. I wasn't alone. Everyone on the team, with the possible exception of his pal B.J. Armstrong, was kept in the dark. With each passing day, Michael's return appeared more likely, especially with baseball not being an option anytime soon. The players had gone on strike the previous August, which resulted in the cancellation of the rest of the 1994 season. By the following March, there was still no end in sight to the labor troubles. Some guys were willing to cross the picket lines to join replacement players in the minor leagues. Not Michael. On March 18th, he made it official with his famous facts, I'm back. I was overjoyed, which I think surprised some people. 
They figured I wouldn't want to be demoted to number two again, that I preferred to be Batman to Robin. I won't lie. I enjoyed being the man, proving to the critics I could take my game to a whole other level if I didn't have to defer to Michael. Jerry Krause, meanwhile, had more to prove. Winning 55 games in the 1993-94 season wasn't enough. No wonder he wasn't excited about having Michael back. Scotty, Horace, those are your kids, Michael used to tell Jerry. You didn't draft me. That would irritate Jerry to no end, which only encouraged Michael to keep saying it. He always knew which of Jerry's buttons to push, and there were many. Not that Michael would be able to cure everything that was wrong with the Chicago Bulls. He wasn't Horace Grant. He couldn't battle with the big man in the post, and we still needed a lot of help on the boards. Furthermore, he wasn't in what I like to refer to as mid-season condition. I don't care who you are. You can't show up for a few practices and expect to be the player you were before. Your body won't let you. It's not just the games themselves. It's the practices, the travel, the mental focus that is required day after day. Michael hadn't been through that kind of regimen since we defeated the Suns in the 1993 finals nearly two full years earlier. The rest of us had to make an adjustment too, mostly the guys who had never played with him. Not just where to get him the ball or where to position themselves when he drove to the basket. To play with Michael meant adjusting to the attention he generated from fans, reporters, photographers, celebrities, you name it, which was, incredibly enough, more overwhelming than ever. Guys were starstruck, as if he were a matinee idol, which I suppose he was. I'm talking about grown men who had been in the league for years. They didn't know how to approach him. In many cases, they didn't bother. Better to keep their distance than say the wrong thing and get on his bad side. I can't tell you how many times a teammate would come up to me and ask, Hey, do you think I can get MJ to sign this? Every time, whether it was a jersey for their kid brother or a program from a game where Michael scored 50 points, I gave them the same look. Good luck. No one was more intimidated than Tony. Tony always wanted to play with Michael. When Michael retired, he was devastated. Be careful what you wish for. Tony was already having to deal with Phil, who constantly got on his case about not playing defense the right way. Now here comes Michael, who, to put it kindly, wasn't shy about expressing himself. Michael's first game back was on March 19th against the Pacers in Indianapolis. It felt more like June 19th. That's how amped up the fans were in Market Square Arena and how many members of the media were in attendance. Wearing the number 45 jersey, the first number he used in high school instead of his familiar 23, Michael was rusty, as one would expect. He hit only seven of his 28 shots as we lost in overtime, 103-96. After beating the Celtics in the next game, we took on the Orlando Magic at the United Center. This was a big test for us, the Magic the clear favorites to come out of the East. We failed. Michael was out of sync once more, 
7 for 23, Orlando winning 106 to 99. There was no reason to be concerned. It was Michael Jordan. He would find his rhythm before long. Try the very next game. With 5.9 seconds to go and trailing the Hawks by one, MJ caught the inbounds pass and went the full length of the court to hit a 14-foot game winner at the buzzer. He finished with 32 points. Not bad for someone who had spent all those months trying to hit curveballs. Then came the night at the Garden, the night no one saw coming. Michael hit six of his first seven shots on his way to 20 points in the quarter. He added 15 in the second and 14 in the third. He ended up with 55, the most anyone had scored the entire season, and fed Bill Winnington for the game-winning dunk as we defeated the Knicks 113-111. to It would become known as the Double Nickel Game. The facts told the world, I'm back. The performance at the Garden made it official. Michael played in 17 games before the playoffs got underway in late April. We won 13 of them to finish the season at 47-35 and 35 to secure the number five seed in the East. We were the Bulls again. Anything was possible. Our opponent in the first round, a best-of-five series, would be the Hornets with game one in Charlotte. The last time we started the playoffs on the road was 1989. The Hornets won 50 games in the 94-95 season with a future Hall of Fame center, Alonzo Mourning, forward Larry Johnson, and a lightning-quick point guard who brought back wonderful memories from my life-changing week at the pre-draft tournament in Portsmouth, Virginia, Muggsy Bogues. I will never be able to thank Muggsy enough. This being a short series, Game 1 took on greater significance than normal. The final in overtime was Bulls 108, Hornets 100. The credit goes to Michael, who poured in 48, including 10 of our 16 points in the OT. The Hornets came back to take Game 2, 106-89, Morning leading the way with 23 points and 20 rebounds. In Game 3, we held him in check, 13.7 rebounds, and a convincing 103-80 triumph. One more victory at the stadium, and it would be on to the next round. Easier said than done, especially with Michael having an off night. During a 16-minute stretch in the third and fourth quarters of Game 4, he didn't score a single point. I wouldn't have thought that was possible. Picking up the slack were me and Tony, who finished with 21 points and 11 rebounds. Even so, the Hornets were in position to steal it at the end. Down by a point with a few seconds to go, Johnson took a jump shot from behind the free throw line. Air ball. An over-the-back follow attempt by Hersey Hawkins was also off the mark. We survived. Barely. The top-seeded Magic were next. No one doubted their talent. The question was, were they ready to climb the next hurdle? It takes time to knock off the champs, as we found out against the Pistons. And with MJ back, we felt that's who we still were, the champs. As if the 1993-94 season had never happened. Our toughest challenge would be containing Shaq. He was a beast. That season, 
only his third in the league, he averaged 29.3 points and 10.8 rebounds. We didn't have anyone who could guard him straight up. By the way, no one else did either. His weakness was free throws. He made only 53%. I never understood why Shaq didn't work harder on that part of his game. As dominant as he was, he could have been even better. Fortunately, with three capable big men, Bill Winnington, Luke Longley, and Will Perdue, we could be aggressive with Shaq, having 18 fouls, six fouls apiece to play with. They were known as the three-headed monster. Anyway, so much for Shaq's weakness. In game one, he hit 12 of 16 from the line, scoring 26 points and pulling down 12 rebounds. Nonetheless, we were in it the whole way, thanks to another stellar effort by Tony, 17 points, 9 rebounds, 7 assists, and 34 points from our bench. With 18 seconds to go, we were ahead 91-90. Michael dribbled up the court, trailed closely by guard Nick Anderson. The Magic would likely have to commit a foul. Or would they? Anderson stripped it away from Michael, Penny gaining control of the loose ball. He raced down court and fed Horace, who slammed it home. The Magic were now up 92 to 91. To suggest Michael was in shock, that the entire basketball world was in shock, would be an understatement. No one steals the ball from Michael Jordan in crunch time. Except this wasn't the same Michael. This was the Michael who had been away from the game for nearly two years. Timeout, Chicago. 6.2 seconds to go. It wasn't over yet. Michael would have a chance to redeem himself. He caught the ball near half court and dribbled toward the free throw line. He jumped and, in midair, instead of taking the shot, threw the ball to me. I wasn't expecting him to pass. No one was. The ball floated behind me out of bounds as I had already edged toward the basket for a possible rebound. The magic won 94-91. A quarter of a century later, people recall the Anderson steal as proof Michael wasn't infallible. Gee, I could have told them that. What they probably don't recall is that Michael scored 38 points, 17 of 30 in game two, as we even the series 104-94. If not infallible, he was still Michael Jordan. In that game, he switched back to wearing number 23. Number 45 hadn't felt right. Off to Chicago we went, with the split we were looking for. And all the momentum in the world. Too bad it didn't last. In game three, the Magic beat us 110-101. Shaq scored 28 points, including 8 of 10 from the line. Who is this big dude impersonating Shaquille O'Neal? We rebounded in game four, 106 to 95, to square the series again. The Magic then captured game five, 103 to 95, as Shaq dominated with 23 points, 22 rebounds, and five blocked shots. A beast, I'm telling you. Horace was also great, 24 points and 11 rebounds. Still, if we could just take care of business in Chicago, the pressure would be on the magic. 
they would be in a place they had never been before. A game seven. No problem. With over three minutes remaining in game six, BJ nailed a three-pointer from the corner to give us an eight-point advantage. The atmosphere in the United Center was electric, like the stadium used to be. Timeout, Orlando. Two possessions later, Shaq scored in the paint to narrow the lead to six. Following a Bulls turnover, Anderson hit a three. We failed to score the next time down court, our third unsuccessful trip in a row. Not a good time to go cold. The Magic took advantage. Brian Shaw converting two free throws. The eight-point lead had all but evaporated. After Michael threw up an air ball, Anderson hit another jumper. Now it was gone. The Magic up by one. Phil caught time with 42.8 seconds to go. This simply could not be happening. Not to the Chicago Bulls, the franchise with three rings in the past four years, not in our own building, and not with Michael Jordan back in the fold. Down the stretch, we had two chances to tie or take the lead. First, Luke missed an easy one a couple feet from the basket after a perfect dish from Michael after small forward Dennis Scott hit a free throw to give the Magic a two-point advantage, Michael turned it over again. That was it. The final, 108-102. to Over the last three minutes, Orlando outscored us 14-0. to The celebration got underway. The Magic players carried Horace, the returning conquering hero, on their shoulders as he waved a white towel. I hated to lose, obviously, although a small part of me didn't mind seeing Horace rub the loss in Jerry Krause's face. Who knows? Maybe I would get the same opportunity one day. If the Bulls had their way, I would have been gone sooner than later. They reached out to several teams shortly after we were eliminated to see if there was any interest in a trade. Just because Michael was back, didn't mean they wanted me back. Believe it or not, I wanted to come back. I know, wasn't I the guy who earlier that same season had been hoping to leave? Indeed. A lot had changed since then. Michael's return at the top of the list. Our reign, if interrupted, was far from over. Guys such as Steve Kerr, Bill Winnington, Ron Harper, Tony Kukoc, and Luke Longley now knew how to play with Michael and how to deal with the spectacle always surrounding him. The final two months of the 1994-95 season were a perfect dress rehearsal. All we needed was a rebounder and defender to replace Horace. I could never have imagined who that player would be.